Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Vuk Jukic and this is Anablock Podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology, ideas, business, science, history, and world affairs. This podcast is for anyone that likes to learn new things about business and technology. Anablock Podcast is brought to you by Anablock. Anablock is a system integrator and Salesforce partner. Anablock's technical team helps organizations to implement, customize, and optimize their Salesforce applications. In this episode, our guest is Tim Berglund. Tim's a teacher, author, and technology leader with Confluent, where he serves as the Senior Director of Developer Advocacy. We talk about Apache Kafka, Confluent, Salesforce Connector for Kafka, Confluent Cloud, and many other interesting topics. Event streaming platform also requires a little bit of, intro- of, of explanation, but it tends to satisfy uh, the, the technical listener or reader a little bit better. Uh, it still takes a while to, to get that point across, but uh, when you have a view of the world that's focused on state, right? Let's say you think at the center of a computer program is a database. And in that database, there are records that describe the state of things. And then you have an application around that database that that lets people manipulate state and view it and and kind of automate those changes. Uh, That's one thing. Um, And that's been a, I'd like to dig into that a little bit more as we keep talking. That's that's been a paradigm that's been reigning for longer than I've been alive. Um, You might also take a view of software that views the world as a sequence of events, things that happen. And it's the job of an application to process those events in, you know, to do computation over them and expose the results of that computation back to the world. When you take that event first view of the world, well, that's what Confluent does. Um, it's based on this open source foundation, this thing called Apache Kafka, uh, but we've got a cloud service that is this event streaming platform in the cloud and we've got an on-prem product uh, that is that same thing if you need to run it in a way that you manage yourself. And very interesting. Uh, so, so can you tell us, um, I guess maybe we can start with history of Confluent. Um, how or when was the company started or founded, I should say? And was it just the idea really to... Um, have an easier approach to the Kafka technology, or I, I guess what's the what's the reason for for Confluent to, to exist, and what's the you mentioned what the offering is, the product offering, but uh-huh. um, can you maybe just expand a little bit to understand what's the core focus of the company? Do you have like multiple product offerings or etc.? Yeah, so uh, you you nailed it. Now I, I think that answer is is becoming a little more nuanced these days. But Confluent was started in, I want to say, September of 2014 uh, by the co-creators of Apache Kafka. So these are the folks who built this open source project that was becoming very successful. Uh, you know, they all worked at LinkedIn and built it because they needed this thing to do their job. And, and you know, LinkedIn open sourced it. And it was great. And so, but but it, was, it was incomplete. It wasn't really ready for widespread enterprise adoption super hard to operate, you know, it took, took just kind of global level experts to operate it. Uh, so they started a company whose mission it was to build an event streaming platform and put it at the heart of every company. 
So it's not just let's make Kafka easier to run, but it really is this worldview, this kind of software architecture worldview that an event first or event centric view of the world leads to more flexible, more evolvable, easier to change, easier to extend, uh, faster responding, you know, in terms of runtime software architectures. So yes, to productize Kafka, to build a enterprise, uh, you know, set of features around Kafka, to build a cloud service, all those things. Um, but really just as much to, to make that work, you have to help the world of developers and architects understand that um, event-driven architecture is a good way to build systems. So your prob uh, primary target market is developers and architects. Is that true? Uh, mine is, yeah. Now, I, I don't oh, okay. know. That Con Confluent wouldn't say that, but uh, in my role in developer relations at Confluent, those are the people I talk to, absolutely. Got it. Um, and I, mean, it, who's... I, I didn't share this at the beginning, but can you just tell us a little bit about your role and what is your title? I would be delighted. My title is Senior Director of Developer Advocacy. And so what my team does is help explain Kafka and event-driven architecture and the cloud and, and these things as they exist in the cloud to the global audience of developers, operators, and architects who would build things uh, out of Kafka and Confluent. Very, very cool. Um, so I, I guess, let me back up a tiny bit. So you mentioned that the original Kafka technology comes from the, I guess, two or three, I'm not sure how many founders or engineers originally worked. Um, I, I think one part that um, maybe to a certain extent it's confusing for me is uh, like the, the, the name Apache Kafka, like, okay, Kafka, I understand, but where does Apache come into the play and why is it called Apache Kafka? Ah, great know? question. So um, Apache refers to the Apache Software Foundation, uh, which is a not-for-profit foundation that I should know when they were formed, uh, late 90s. So okay. they've, they've been around a while now and they're, to some degree, an incubator for open source projects and a set of, of legal and trademark protections. And fundamentally, like there, there's all that, right? There's lawyers, there's trademark mm -hmm. people, there's, there's all that kind of stuff around the edges. And I'm like some of these people are people that I know. I'm not saying, you know, all that stuff that doesn't matter. They matter a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but in my opinion, what Apache fundamentally is, is a governance model and a license okay for a project. So if you're an Apache project, you're open source under a permissive license called the Apache Public License, APL, that exists in several versions. And the way your project is governed is, is laid out explicitly in you know, the, the Apache governance model. Uh, there's a project management committee called the PMC with elected members. There are people with commit rights. The PMC makes decisions about releases and other kinds of communications and, and things like that. So it's a governance model, it's a license really fundamentally. And when, um, when you create a project and something that starts to get some traction, you know, you have a decision to make about how you're gonna license it and do you want it under an umbrella like the ASF and the original creators of Apache Kafka, I suppose with the blessing of their employer, LinkedIn, uh, released Kafka or, uh, that sort of partnered with the ASF to make it an ASF project. Okay. 
And just to mention, so the audience is aware, uh, you have a really cool podcast uh, specific to this discussion that we're having today. Um, I had a chance to binge on it for, for a while when I first discovered <laughs> it. No problem. And um, we will definitely share a link uh, to the description of this episode so everyone can actually find it. Um, I, I found it on Apple Podcast. I'm guessing it might be available on some other apps too. Yep. Um, it should be everywhere podcasts are sold and also developer.confluent.io slash podcast. And, and you've been doing it for, I think, three years, right? Since 2018, from what I've seen, at least. That sounds, that's funny. I actually don't know what our first episode was, but yeah. it sounds like 2018 sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, you know, it's just amazing for us, I guess, um, devs and architects that like to geek out on these different podcasts. It's like an amazing, I, I've learned a lot, basically. So I strongly recommend yes. it to everyone. Oh, thank you. I appreciate um, that. No problem at all. So how long have you been with, with, with Confluent and what, what is your background? Uh, so let's see, we're recording this, if, if I may say the date we're recording on, it's April 5th. Definitely. Uh, this coming Saturday, April 10th, is my four-year anniversary at Confluent. So I'm coming up on, so this week is my, my four-year anniversary. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, it's been good. Um, company has grown a lot in that time in great mm -hmm. ways. Uh, so my background, I, I started my career as a firmware developer, um, mostly on, uh, well, oddly at the time, embedded PCs, which were quite an adventure in the early 90s. And, and like a lot of small 8-bit microcontrollers and, and things like that, uh, gradually started to bridge into Windows development. And then in the late 90s, uh, a company, I, a services company that I ran took on a client that wanted something web-based. And we didn't know about this is, you know, late into the dot-com boom and we're these hardware guys writing firmware, right? And so we, we got into this web thing and it was pretty cool. That sort of captured me for a while. Uh, and then I, I was a full-stack Java web developer for a long time. And then 10 or so years after that began to drift into training because I, I found out that I like teaching people and I'm, I'm good at it. And nice. um, yeah, started to do more training. And then that you do that and you start to speak at conferences and then you're the kind of person who realizes that you just really like attention. And so <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I did a lot of that and that kind of gradually morphed. 10 years ago, kind of when that part of my journey started, nobody was really saying developer relations. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't uh -huh. a coherent discipline. Um, and now, you know, it's a, it's a profession. There are teams called that and it's, it's a strategic part of the go-to-market for some SaaS businesses. So yeah, over the last kind of five to 10 years, that, that training, speaking, engineering background, leader kind of thing uh, becomes this, you know, I, I, I build developer relations, developer advocacy teams, and it's a great thing to do. Love it. Excellent. And are you um, working for Confluent? Did you make some kind of like a conscious decision that you specifically want to be surrounded by this technology or it was more of just um i guess kind of serendipity yeah no i wish i wish uh you know there are things people will pay me for one of them is not being a technology analyst right okay. like I, i'm not i'm not here to pick your horses um, uh -huh. so i didn't if you look at the just the tremendous success Kafka and event streaming have been and event-driven architectures. Like I, I really believe this is a generational paradigm. 
And 20 years from now, when I'm, I'm probably not working in this field anymore, there will, there will still be young people entering the field, learning how to build event-driven applications. I think it is that. I did not join Confluent because I'm so smart and I saw that. Um, I saw what looked like a promising company who had a similar vision where the, the founders and the executives had a similar vision for developer relations to what I had. That was really what I wanted to do. And I said, hey, these, these guys want to do that same thing. How about I do it here? And then it was really about six months later that I realized, oh, actually, no, this is huge. <laughs> this, this is going to be big. Um, I mean, I, I always thought it was a good idea, but I, I, th- I don't think I realized the magnitude of, of what event streaming represented, what event-driven architecture represented until a few months in. Got it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very cool company. Actually, I just discovered it maybe a month ago. So um, it's definitely something very interesting. So kind of going back to Kafka, I first was introduced to it maybe like some five years ago, working for a startup here in San Francisco. Um, wasn't sure back then much like about, you know, what, what's the potential behind it. But then I just slowly started as working as a consultant, primarily working on the large, larger companies. I noticed that a lot of companies are um, implementing the technology and, yeah. and kind of starting to get around it and, and finding the values behind it. So, and I think in some of your podcasts that I can't remember exactly the episode, but you, you, you mentioned that, or in your podcast, I should say, you mentioned that this is something that's definitely getting more and more traction. Um, I, I guess, can you tell us just like, what are the benefits for corporations or organizations in general utilizing Kafka versus my, maybe some more traditional approaches like point-to-point APIs? Yeah, great, uh, great one. So um, I, think, I think there are two big drivers. And the good thing about these is that they are what economists would call secular trends. And that's a, that's a strange word that economists use in a specialized way, but it means uh, kind of inevitable long-term trend. It's something that's happening. It's not like you know interest rates were up a half a percent this year, inflation was down a quarter percent. That's all cyclical stuff. But the secular stuff is, is like, you know, there's less farm employment than there was 100 years ago, right? And so these secular trends we see in software architecture um, there are a couple of them. One is um, towards programs getting smaller, right? Applications are more complex. The, the, the kind of complexity we're trying to deliver is a lot higher, but uh, we're deploying that as little armies of small programs that talk. And I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying the word microservices, but you, know, you can only do that for so long. Um, that's a trend. That's happening. And that's not happening because of Kafka. It was happening before a lot of people really knew what Kafka even was. So people are tending to break large programs down into small services. And as a result, the programs we write are, are still sometimes programs that interact with people, right? You have to expose a user interface to a web front end or a mobile front end or something. Um, but increasingly, these services are programs that talk to each other. And the kind of application architecture, and why should say not application architecture, but data architecture, data infrastructure that works best as a substrate underneath a suite of programs that are spending a lot of time talking to each other is not the same kind of data infrastructure that you want for 
a big giant program that mostly talks to other people. Okay, so applications are breaking down into little pieces. Therefore, a lot of our software is talking to other programs. Uh, that's one thing. That trend is happening. If there was no such thing as Confluent, no such thing as Kafka, that would still be happening. The other one is uh, we're under pressure to build systems that respond faster. And on the one hand, that, that seems vacuous. It's like you never wanted to write a slow program ever. But uh, an ETL system that gives you answers tomorrow um, kind of sounds like something that you do during the Clinton administration, right? That's what, that was a while yeah. ago. That was cool then. Uh-huh. Uh, you can't do that now. Now you're, you know, something happens. And I, I carry a device in my pocket that I expect is going to wiggle when that thing happens. Um, and I think that's driven by mobile, honestly, but there's this, yep. this pressure for real-time response and there's a pressure towards smaller programs that talk to each other a lot. And I think those two things the pressure for real time and um, the move towards microservices both mean event-driven architectures are things that are going to be more successful. I'm, I'm happy to unpack that more, but I think those are the drivers. And uh, 20 years from now, th- those there might be different drivers. There'll probably be different pressures on us, but those things aren't going away, right? Those are those are with exactly. us. Exactly. Exactly, and I think just to shed a little bit of light. Um, to the or for the audience, I worked maybe three four years ago for uh, one of the larger banks in the U.S. And uh, for example, uh, you're mentioning the ETL process. So basically, like this is I think this was a great use case for for a streaming service like Kafka. Is uh, banks today due to number of different circumstances, not to go into that, but basically they are rewarding their employees by the level of service they have given. Um, So for example, a lot of, if you go to a major bank, you receive a survey, even if you interact with them, you know, online or through uh, uh, telemarketing, I'm not sorry, from from, through the call center. So uh, you receive a survey basically and a lot of now companies are doing the similar thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to, if you want a brief survey after this call, press two. Exactly. Yeah. So generally you receive an email. How was your experience with, you know, John Doe when you were asking Mm -hmm. about a home loan? So what we originally implemented was an, well, the first solution was ETL process. So technically you visit the bank today in about maybe three, four days, (laughs) because you have like large, large amounts of data. You can imagine like, for example, a bank with 5,000 branches and there's so much data they need to move from one environment to another so they can send an email. So basically like three, four days later, I receive an email. Well, you know, I'm not gonna even remember maybe how was my experience. But obviously with a streaming service, you get that maybe the same day or a few hours after you leave the branch. Um, so I think that was one of the great use cases that I discovered. Uh, working on, on, on some of these projects. Uh, but um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, there's like an immediate need or, or expectation by consumers today to have data right away. Um, so I think that's probably, and you probably see it a lot more than I do being in, you know, uh, closer to, to these uh, organizations that are doing the implementation. So, so that's, so do you see like a major growth in, in, in implementation of, of streaming services like Kafka or uh, are a lot of organizations moving in that direction these days? Yes, definitely. Um, it's, and, and you know, my day-to-day is uh, much more about, about 
interfacing with the developers and architects who build the stuff and less the people who, who buy, you know, cause there's, 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 there's buyers and there's users in the world. And I'm mostly talking to the users who build things, but they feel pretty much universally a pressure to do the things that event-driven architecture makes easier. And there's, I mean, you can find people who disagree among developers easily, but there's a consensus, a broad consensus that this is uh, the next paradigm, right? This is the way I'm building my next system and the next system after that. Um, you know, I, was, I was taught to design a database and then build an application around that database. Now I'm going to think about events and build a suite of applications around those events of, of small applications. Got it. Um, so can you tell us uh, what is Confluent Cloud? Well, best question of the day. Uh, Confluent <laughs> Cloud is a fully managed uh, Apache Kafka service. And, and really it's, it's more than that. It's Apache Kafka plus a bunch of other goodies. So um, number one, by, by fully managed, um, I'm not supposed to say serverless, but you know, there's kind of like this serverless vibe to it where I'll go in and say, okay, I want a standard cluster. Um, and Kafka is a distributed system, right? There are nodes in it that you call brokers. And if you were administering it on your own, you'd have to think, well, I need, I think I need seven brokers and then the zookeeper nodes. And I got to manage these distributed systems and figure out how many of that I want. Well, in Confluent Cloud, if with that kind of cluster, you don't do that. You just say, I'd like a cluster. And how many brokers are there? I don't know. That's, that's for somebody else to worry about. It's just topics, which are like message logs. And you could start storing messages in them. You, could, you can produce to them. You can consume from them. Uh, it's, it's fully managed. You don't worry about when, what you have to do to scale up or scale down. You just pay for what you use. Um, and it's pretty cool. The thing is, uh, your, your world needs a lot more than just message logs and producers and consumers, right? You need to integrate with other systems. My understanding is this podcast is about Salesforce. You might need right. to interface with Salesforce, <laughs> get data in or out. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Can you do it? Yes, you can in Confluent Cloud. There's a built-in connector that lets you do that. You also will need to do real-time computations on the messages that you're putting into these topics and we've got a SQL-based language called KSQL DB built into Confluent Cloud. You can stand up, you can write basically SQL queries that do real-time, one message at a time, event-driven processing of the, the message, of the data that you're getting in, you're, you're producing or sourcing from other systems through Connect into Confluent Cloud. There's other stuff, like there's a super cool metrics API where you can write queries and it'll spit high-speed JSON objects back at you to tell you what's going on with your cluster, uh, all kinds of the cool things like that. So in, uh, so I came across KSQL DB. Can you maybe just to dig a little bit deeper into it? Um, really, is that unique to the Confluent cloud itself or is that part of kind of like the broader Apache Kafka offering? Yeah, okay. or, yeah. let me... Um, let me, let me give a, a precise answer there. KSQL DB is not a part of Apache Kafka. So okay. um, it's, not, uh, it's not managed by the Apache Software Foundation. It's a thing that Confluent wrote. Um, and um, that, that, 
doesn't really matter much if you're a developer who wants to use it. Like you can still download the code and clone the mm -hmm. repo and build it, use it for free. You don't have to buy it. You can deploy your own server. And it's a, there's a website, ksqldb.io, that looks like any other open source projects website. Um, you know, the license is different from the Apache license and there are all kinds of little things, but for the most part, like nobody cares. Um, it's just the, the product, the, the, the governance model is different. It's a confluent product manager that figures out the priorities rather than this open community thing um, like the ASF would do. Um, also, to be clear, uh, you don't need to use Confluent Cloud, use KSQL. Like I said, again, you can simply download it and run it for free. Okay. Um, in most cases, that's perfectly fine to do. Uh, it's a part of Confluent Platform. So if you buy the on-prem version, you're getting KSQL DB. But by far, the easiest way to do it is to use it in the cloud. And if you're a Confluent Cloud user, then you, you know, create your cluster and you go over here and you click on KSQL DB and you say, create a new application with four streaming units of processing power and you go get a cup of coffee and you come back and your cluster is there and you start writing queries. Excellent. Uh, so what are connectors? Hmm, connectors. Well, um, let me back up a step and just think mm -hmm. about how this works. When you, when you start using Kafka to okay. store events, um, I haven't really quite said this directly yet, but it's not a message queue. You know, we've got topics, we've got brokers, there's all this stuff that is gonna make a lot of enterprise software developers think, oh, it's it's like, you know, IBM MQ or Active MQ or something. Uh, it's not, it's not a queue, it's a collection of logs. A topic is a durable log of messages. And you can put them in, you can take them out. Once you put them in, you can have many applications read them. Uh, they don't go away when you read them because it's a log. Uh, and that's really cool. You can build a lot on top of that. But one of the things that emerged quickly in 2015, actually, from the Kafka communities, people realized that they were doing a lot of data integration. You know, there's there's things that aren't Kafka in the world. And, and you know, maybe that's a bummer, but there they are. And you, you need to get that data into Kafka. And then you need to get, get the data from Kafka back into those systems. And like I said before, Salesforce is absolutely one of those things. So Kafka Connect is this, this kind of official Apache Kafka data integration framework. And what it looks like if you're running it yourself, not doing it in the cloud, is it's a server process that you, you, you spin up a new instance and you run connect on it. It's a JVM process, it runs. And um, you deploy connectors to that connect cluster. A connector is a little piece of code Maybe it's commercially licensed, maybe it's open source, maybe it's community licensed, whatever. It's a thing that you get from somewhere that does the actual work of talking to that external system. So I've got Salesforce outside my Kafka cluster, obviously, because Salesforce ain't Kafka. It's a whole application, right? And I want to get something, some collection of Salesforce objects into a Kafka topic. That's the job of a connector to do. Now, you could write that code yourself if you were a good Salesforce developer and you sort of knew that API and you learned how to write Kafka producer code, which would probably take you about you know, five minutes if you know one of the relevant languages. Um, but actually getting that right is a lot harder than it sounds. And so the connector is this pre-built way of getting that integration done. And connectors fall into two categories, source for reading data from something and getting it into Kafka and sync for taking data that's in a Kafka topic and writing it to some external system. 
And in the case of the SFDC connector, uh, there, it exists in both source and sync forms. Very interesting. Uh, so what would be, and I think you partially have already covered it, but um, let's say like a typical, maybe in enterprise environment, well, I shouldn't, we're not going to go into all the details because there's a lot, but let's say like you have an app, you know, enterprise cloud application like Salesforce, and then you have another system like Snowflake where, you know, you're, you're maybe um, have a, where you have like um, uh, some sort of like a data store or data lake. Um, what would the integration look like between these three, I guess, this, well, I guess applications slash systems, um, how do they interact? How do they speak to each other? How does the data uh, travel between one sister through Confluent Cloud to, to the other system from source to target? Got it. So say you set up your Confluent Cloud cluster and you deploy a Salesforce source connector. When you do that, you're going to get a little form you know, in the, the web interface where you type in a source URL and some credentials and the name of an object, and actually, I don't, I don't know the Salesforce connector super well. There are a few other things like I've seen in general, that page once, it, but yeah, it can be yeah. just on a global level. It doesn't necessarily Stuff. have to be just Salesforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in and for whatever that source system is, uh, you're you're giving you know some network addressable name, some credentials, and the name of the collection of things that you want. Uh, if you're connecting to a database, a relational database, which is a very common connect use case, it's going to be a table name and, um, you know, maybe some filters on, on what you want out of the table and, and things like that. Um, so that that's that source connector. Where, who am I, what do I want? And then that just runs constantly. And so the details vary from connector to connector. Like uh, that might mean the connector talks to that source system and, and, you know, creates some kind of query. And then that source system starts spitting little pieces of JSON at the connector. It may mean that the connector pulls the source system every second or something like that. It just, it's different. It depends. That's the whole idea of a connector is it does that interface. What you okay. know when that connector is running is that you've got a topic where messages are landing. So something happens in that source system, some state change happens out there. What you know is now there's a topic with a new message in it. And you can write an application that responds to that new message. Um, that can be your own consumer that just says, oh, hey, here's this new message. I'm going to do work with it. Or it could be a KSQL DB application where you write a SQL query that does something. Like maybe there's some field that you want to group by and, and calculate a one-minute average uh, over uh, some other field in that source object and then produce those averages to another topic. So you've got the source, things happen, they come into your, your initial topic, you do some computation, add value, maybe look something up somewhere else, enrich it, whatever it is you do, and then you produce that new event or new message to another topic. Okay. Which gets us to the second part of your scenario there, Maybe that second topic is something we need to be in Snowflake because the, the, the data science folks who are looking at Snowflake or the analysts with the dashboard, whoever it is, they want that real-time computed data available to them. And so you'd have now a sync connector 
that consumes from that second topic with the computed results in it and writes them into to Snowflake based on that API, again, with credentials and a URL and, you know, uh, whatever, whatever the relevant name of the connection, collection of things is for that sync system. Got it. Uh, thank, thanks for walking us through that. Uh, and you touched on uh, Kafka topic. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit for some of us that are new to this whole um, to this technology? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, just in terms of concepts, um, it's if if Kafka were a relational database, topics would be tables. Now, Kafka is not a relational database, and topics aren't tables. But uh, just like a database is a collection of tables, a cluster. In terms of the, the abstraction, you want to look at it with from the outside world. A cluster is a collection of topics. Now, each topic is fundamentally a log. And if you think of the semantics of a log, just think of like a log file. What do you do? Well, you you if you're directly programming against some log API, you create a string and you emit it to the log. Where does it go? It goes on the end. Can you put it in the middle? No, you can't. That's against the rules. Could you go back into the middle of a log and delete a message or edit a message? Well, probably you're a criminal if you're doing that, right? <laughs> Something, yeah. Something's wrong. I, I, I have questions yeah. if you're editing a log. So topics are logs, which means they're append-only event. The things in them are immutable, and they're, they're strictly ordered, right? I, I put things, and they, they go in order. And I can scan through them. I can read them in order. Um, we can configure the amount of time data lives in a topic. So famously, by default, the retention default retention period for a topic out of the box for Kafka is seven days. Um, that default means nothing. It, it, it is okay. the default. It doesn't mean that seven days is good. It could be 700 years. It could be seven minutes. Uh, these are all great retention periods. Um, but the, the data stays in the log until it ages out. Um, the good thing about that is it's an incredibly simple, very reliable set of semantics. You can build lots of kinds of systems, complex systems on top of logs. The bad thing is, is they're no fun to read, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just, all you can do is just scan them. That's, that's kind of not great. Um, and that's why things like KSQL DB exist and APIs like Kafka Streams, which is a Java API that that's kind of like a lower level way of doing that same kind of thing. Because um, you need complex ways of, of, um, well, of reading and processing that data in real time, creating queryable tabular views of what's in the data. All this is, this is what always comes up when you're, when you're reading through a log. And Kafka's native APIs don't really help you. Well, Kafka Streams helps you with that, but the consumer API doesn't do any of that. It just, it just says, well, here's your next message. Uh, good luck, you know. And, and so these other layers like Kafka Streams and KSQL DB grow up on top of that because the log is a great foundation for, for building distributed systems on top of and for, for building microservices that talk to each other and all these things are just wonderful. Ask me more if you want me to go into more detail on that. But uh, they're, they're absolutely no fun to read. And so other layers grow up. Just like Kafka Connect grew up on top of topics to do data integration, streams, KSQL DB, they grow up on, on top of topics to make stream processing easier. Got it. Um, so is, is um, to a certain extent, um, is the, um, 
not only Confluent Cloud, but basically the whole Kafka event architecture, basically it's some sort of a database. Is, it, is that true or? Ah, well, I don't know. Nobody's ever asked. Uh -huh. no, uh, that, that comes up uh -huh. a lot. Uh -huh. So um, I think if you want a simple answer, uh, the short answer is no. Okay. Uh, the long answer, as I've said before, is no. Uh, but um, it, it's so to elaborate, Kafka is not a database. If you come to Kafka expecting a database, uh, you're going to be vastly, sorely disappointed. Um, Kafka, in my opinion, is like a database construction toolkit. Okay. So at the heart of every database, whether you ever touch it or not, is a write ahead log. When you make a change to a database, it gets written to a log. Um, and then the database goes and takes that log and creates other views of it, like tables or collections or graphs or whatever. Um, with Kafka, like all of my microservices in my system create outputs and they write them to logs and then create materialized views of the data in those logs for exposure to the outside world. So it's like you're building a big giant distributed database with Kafka as the, the, the logging substrate with all of the components around it, like connect and streams and KSQLDB that you're, you're gonna need anyway uh, to get that work done. So Kafka itself, not a database. The okay. system you're building on top of Kafka, kind of, if you step back, squint your eyes a little bit, starts to really look like you're building a special purpose database. Got it. Um, so, so what are some of the, cool or innovative use cases that you came across uh, for developers or, or, or companies leveraging this technology? One of my favorites from a few years ago, and I don't know the current status of it, but um, it was uh, Children's Hospital of Atlanta. And uh, there's, a, there's an episode uh, of the streaming audio podcast, the Confluent podcast that the, the architect um, who, who drove this, he, he talks about what he did. Um, but there were a number of uh, like neonatal and pediatric intracranial pressure monitors. So these are devices that you actually have to put into the skull to measure the pressure. So when there's a traumatic brain injury and there's brain swelling, uh, intracranial pressure is a, you know, a, a, a accurate predictor of, of morbidity going and mortality going forward. So like you want to know what that is. Um, and you wouldn't think that that's like a high-speed data source, but apparently it, there's a lot more data that gets generated by one of those things than you might think. And so it was being extracted and, and produced into Kafka, into Kafka topics, and then KSQL DB queries were written to analyze that data based on kind of like offline data science that, that biomedical people had done and to say, well, you know, we're going to now do real-time prediction of does this patient need intervention right now based wow. on... Uh, yeah, yeah. So super cool. Like that's not the biggest 200 node cluster billion messages kind of thing, but in terms of human interest, awesome. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so yeah, that's amazing technology or the amazing use case. Um, are there, um, you know, talk about kind of like real time, near real time, I guess. What's the, uh, what are some of the maybe... I guess the, the speed and frequency of, of the data transmission through Kafka. 
Yeah, there are, um, it's funny every, every year for Kafka summit, there's always a collection of, uh, proposals for the, you know, billion messages a day, sort of the, the Kafka zone three commas club, uh, kind of thing. There are a number of those Yelp was an early adopter. They got to a billion messages a day early LinkedIn, obviously was the, the mm-hmm. primordial Kafka adopter. And they, they are, you know, some trillions, I think at this point, it's, it's pretty crazy. So some of those get really big. Um, and it's funny. I never, I never keep those numbers top of mind. Um, they're cool and it's really neat to see big, large scale applications, but the stuff that really inspires me is the stuff in the middle because most of us aren't going to do a trillion messages a day, right? There's a few companies ever yep. that are going to do that. And they employ a lot of people. It's so like you can go get that job and, and do that work. But then there's a whole lot of kind of ordinary enterprise applications that would be really hard to build without events. And they're easier to build with events and they're more evolvable with events. And like you reach your goals better with events and that, that whole middle section of folks, folks just writing regular enterprise applications uh, that are not gigantimous scale where the, you know, just the, the title of my presentation is going to make you come in the door. Yeah. I love that the most because mm-hmm. it really touches a lot more people and helps a lot more developers build what they're trying to build. Interesting. What is the... Uh, or talk about developers, if someone is, um, you know, has a business requirement or some kind of requirement to, to integrate Kafka and they come to Confluent, or I'm sorry, Confluent Cloud, like what would be the, your word of advice um, to get up to speed with Kafka, with Confluent Cloud itself? Like what, what are some of the steps that you would take as, as a de- developer new to this uh, technology? Well, at the risk of being slightly self-aggrandizing, I'd say <laughs> uh, the Confluent podcast is a good, if you're, if you like podcasts, go through and look for some titles that look like they're on the basics. Mm-hmm. And you also want to go to developer.confluent.io and click on where it says learn Kafka. That's going to get you to a series of 12 introductory videos that, that just tell you the basics, kind of what I've been talking about but with some diagrams and some animations and a little slower. Um, It's actually, it's about 62, 63 minutes of content total, but that's a pretty good way to get started. Um, And with uh, reference to um, Confluent Cloud, how does, um, for example, once we set up the account, like what are the expectations as far as, um, um, I don't know if you want to, or have enough information to go into, for example, the, the billing itself, meaning like what, what is billed? Um, like how does that whole uh, part of the application itself work? I guess, what can a developer expect at what point maybe they, they'll receive a bill, bill for using the service? Uh, right. You can expect uh, to receive a bill. Uh, I guess that should, that, should, uh, that, that should be a thing. Yeah. And <laughs> let's see, I'm, I'm trying to find, is there... Um, where is this? If I can get a a URL. Anyway, um, confluent.cloud is how you get there and sign up. Uh, At the time of this recording, you do need to give a credit card number to get through the sign up process, but you get $200 free the first month and second month and third month. So $600, $200 at a time over three months. 
uh, is the current offer. So if you're listening to this much later and it's different, uh, don't sue me. That's just true right now. Might not be true in the future. <laughs> but there's a, there's a low low friction way to just go screw around basically because like I get it. It's it's some some dang cloud service. You don't know if it's valuable, and you know you're just kind of donating your time to find out if it is. So you don't got to pay for it at that point. Anything that does cost money though, since your credit card number is on the line, it'll tell you, like if you go to create a new cluster, say you want a basic cluster, it'll say, well, putting data in, getting data out, storing data is how much, here's how much they cost per unit. Uh, if you upgrade to a standard cluster, well, here's how much it costs per hour, plus here's data in, data out, storage. Uh, if you want a dedicated cluster, well, okay, here's how much it costs per Confluent streaming unit and blah, blah, blah. So all those things in the user interface, it tells you loudly, here's how much it costs. If you go and you add a, a KSQL DB application, for example, well, that's gonna cost on top of what a topic costs you. So uh, it'll tell you, here's how much it costs per hour. So all that stuff is, is, is clearly advertised in the UI. And when, if, not if, but when, you go play around and kick the tires on Confluent Cloud, do check that out. Because like, we, we want it to be free to, to mess with, but make sure you don't, end up spending money you don't mean to spend. <laughs> we want when you spend money, we want it to be because there's something valuable running on it and you're uh you know you're getting you're getting value out of it. Yeah, and you know my experience has been great so far. It's very easy to use similar to some of the other platforms that have a similar not technology but general like kind of uh, platform model for developers. Um and um talk about other platforms I, I do want to since you know Salesforce owns Heroku and a lot of our, uh, I guess, cust clients are Heroku users too. And I do see here, there's like a Postgres SQL um, connector. Is there anything like you would want to share maybe just working with Heroku? I, don't, I hate to put you in the spot, but I'm just curious if you have any relationship or any previous experiences, I should say, related to Heroku itself and working uh, with the data stored in, in Heroku. Not directly with Confluent Cloud. It's been a while since I've run anything in Heroku, but um, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, Postgres is sort of what, what one uses, right? In yep. Heroku, uh, exactly. you can very much use the, I'm trying to think, like I haven't directly done it, but that Postgres instance in Heroku should be exposed in such a way that the source connector and sync connector can work with it. And those are, those are fully managed connectors inside Confluent Cloud. So that should work great. I don't know if there's any gotchas off the top of my head, but I encourage you to check it out. That, that would not be a super expensive thing to try out if you were a new user and you had your free trial money. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, you know, this kind of actually uh, just to everyone listening to this, when you, uh, log in to Confluent Cloud, you'll see a bunch of different connectors and you will see sync and source connectors. Like for example, for Postgres, there's sync and source. And mm -hmm. as Tim has explained, um, source basically, correct me if I'm wrong, brings data from the source system to to the, I guess, the, the, the cloud, Confluent Cloud in this case specifically, right? Or and then from there, it goes through the sync connector to your target environment. Uh, yep. Source is for reading into, sync is for writing out of, with respect to Confluent. Excellent, excellent. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's a great tool. I, you know, it's, it's been really an honor and privilege to have you on this after um, listening to many of, you, of your episodes on your podcast. And maybe in closing, um, I was wondering if, is there a book that doesn't have to do with Confluent or uh, basically the last question I ask every guest is what is your favorite book or book you would recommend? So it doesn't have to do anything with, with your current job or technology, but something that maybe uh, you would like to share with the audience. Okay. Uh, wow. I, I was not expecting that. Let, I'll, I'll give a few. I'll give a few. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I just started reading the, uh, the novel series the, the ex- based, that The Expanse is based on by mm-hmm. James S.A. Corey. Uh, it's sci-fi. Uh, and I forget the name of the first novel. I can't believe that. But yeah. Anyway, The Expanse, good stuff. Like the TV show, digging the novels. Um, Favorite tech book ever. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say two, and these are okay. these are oldies. Uh, one is about my age, and that's the Mythical Man Month. Um, I mean, it's that's almost a cliche to say that, and not all of it has has held up, right? But so much of that has held up that I'm just in awe of the author's mind that he could write things in 1975 that still mattered in 2021. And the other one, I'm going to go with a book by Kent Beck called Implementation Patterns. Um, and, you know, in terms of the, the actual stuff in the book, it's, it's kind of a Java book. It's like, here's how to write good Java code. Uh, and that's great, right? Like you should know if you're a Java developer, you should know how to write good Java code. The deeper message of the book is um, that, um, you should write code to be readable by people, not just code that, that compiles and, and passes a test. But code gets read a lot more than it gets written. And so writing it for readability is important. I totally agree with that one. That, that, that's one of the big, big challenges I think a lot of developers face is um, getting someone else's code and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, yep. Awesome. Well, thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and... Uh, Have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Luke. Good to see you.